You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, 18 Lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 9, given on January 9, 1921. We now have reached a point in our studies at which we have to proceed with extreme caution. We need to see clearly the danger of allowing our thoughts to depart from reality and we must take care to remain within real concepts so as to avoid this danger. Last time we set forth, as a kind of postulate, the comparison of two facts, the appearance within the solar system of cometary phenomena, and also within the solar system, though perhaps not bearing quite the same relationship to it, everything that we observe in the phenomena of fertilization. However, in order to arrive at ideas about this that are at all justified, we first have to see whether it's at all possible to find connections between two separate things that seem so completely disparate when we confront them within the external world of facts. We cannot arrive at a rigorous conclusion unless we can point to something of a similar nature, which could then be a guide to further contemplations. We have seen how, on the one hand, we have to use the elements of figure and form, and the mathematical, and then how we are compelled again and again to come to terms in one way or another with the qualitative aspect, to find a qualitative approach somehow. And so today we want to insert something that arises in regard to the human constitution, if one really studies it. For we are, after all, as you will have taken away from the many specific points I have made in these lectures, in some way an image of the heavenly phenomena. Yet we still have to establish just how it is that we are such an image. Since that is what we are, our first task is to gain a clear understanding of human nature itself. We have to understand the picture as it were, from which we intend to take our start. We have to understand the inner perspective. When looking at a painting, we have to begin by understanding clearly what a foreshortening means, and so on, in order to pass from the picture to the real spatial relationships and to relate the picture to what it represents in reality. In the same way, If we want to approach reality in the universe, interpreting it through the human constitution, we first have to be clear about human nature itself. Now, it's extraordinarily difficult for us, as human beings, to get hold of our own humanity with any kind of graspable idea. Therefore, I would like today to set before your souls what I might call comprehensibly incomprehensible ideas arising out of very simple relationships. 
These are ideas with which most of you are probably already well acquainted, but which we must nevertheless set before our souls in a certain context. These ideas which seem in part to be quite easy to grasp, and yet again beyond certain limits seem to elude our comprehension, will afford us a means of general orientation for our attempts to grasp the outer world through ideas. It may appear somewhat forced that we keep emphasizing the necessity of referring back to our inner life of ideation in order to understand the phenomena of the heavens. But after all, it's obvious that however carefully we may describe the heavenly phenomena, we have, to begin with, nothing but optical images of a certain kind, permeated with mathematical thoughts. The fundamental nature of astronomy is that it provides us with mere images. Therefore, the only way we can find the right orientation within astronomy is by attending to the way in which images arise within us as human beings. Otherwise, we won't find the right relationship to the things astronomy can tell us. And so today I would like to proceed from some quite simple mathematics and to show you how in a different domain from that to which we were led through the ratios of the periods of revolution of the planets, there appears within mathematics itself something incomprehensible. We meet with it when we study quite familiar curves within a certain context. As I said, many of you already know what I am about to describe. I only want to elucidate the subject today from one particular point of view. If you consider the well-known ellipse with its two foci, A and B, and there's a picture, figure one, you know that one of its characteristics is that for any point M of the curve, the sum of its distances, A to M plus A to B, from the two foci remains constant. It's a characteristic of the ellipse that the sum of the distances of any one of its points from two fixed points, the two foci, remains constant. Then we have a second curve, the hyperbola, see figure 2. You know that it has two branches. It has the characteristic that the difference of the distances of any point of the curve from the two foci, mb minus ma, is a constant magnitude. In the ellipse, then, we have the curve of the constant sum. In the hyperbola, the curve of the constant difference. And now we have to ask, what is the curve of the constant product? I have often drawn attention to this. The curve of the constant product is the so-called curve of Cassini, see figure 3. We find it when having two points, A and B, we consider a point M in regard to its distances from A and B and establish the condition that the two distances, AM and BM, multiplied together should equal a constant magnitude. For the sake of simplicity in the calculation, I will define the constant magnitude as B2 and the distance AB as 2A. And we're referring to figure 3 here. If we take the midpoint 
between A and B as the origin of the axes of a coordinate system and calculate the ordinates for each point that fulfills these conditions. If we let the point, whose ordinate we will call Y, move around so that for each point of the curve AM times BM equals B2, we get the following equation. I will give you only the result for the simple reason that everyone can easily work out the calculation for himself. You'll find it in any mathematical textbook relating to the subject. Uh, readers aside, uh, these are uh, quite long. I will read it only once, but it's shown a number of times. End of readers aside. We find for y the value y equals plus or minus Okay, large square root sign. Underneath it is minus in parentheses a squared plus x squared, close parentheses, plus or minus, square root sign under that bigger square root sign, and in it is b to the fourth plus 4a squared x squared. And that's the end of that formula. Readers aside, sorry, quite complex. End of readers aside. Taking into account that we can't use the negative sign here, because then we would have an imaginary y and therefore considering only the positive sign we have and then he adjusts the formula accordingly. If we then draw the corresponding curve, we have a curve rather like but not identical to an ellipse called after the man who discovered it the curve of Cassini. Figure 4. It is symmetrical to the left and right of the ordinate axis and above and below the abscissa axis. That's the most important consideration. But now this curve has various forms, and for us at any rate, that's the important thing about it. This curve has different forms according to whether, as I have assumed here, B is greater than A, equal to A, or less than A. The curve I have just drawn arises when B is greater than A, and furthermore, when another condition is fulfilled, namely that B is also greater than or equal to A times the square root of 2. Moreover, when B is greater than A times the square root of 2, there is a distinct curvature above and below. If B equals A times the square root of 2, then at this point above and below, the line of the curve becomes straightened it flattens so much that it almost becomes a straight line. See figure 4. If, however, b is less than a times the square root of 2, then the whole course of the curve is changed, and it takes on this form. See figure a. Reader's aside looks something like a peanut shell. End of reader's aside. And if b equals a, the curve transitions into a quite special form. It changes into this form, See figure 6, reader's aside, looks like a lemnus gate. End of reader's aside. It runs back into itself, intersects itself, and comes out on the other side, and we obtain the special form of the lemnus gate. The lemnus gate, then, is a special form of a curve of Cassini. The particular form assumed by the curve is determined by the ratio between the constant magnitudes which appear in the equation characterizing the curve. In the equation, we have only these two constant magnitudes, b and a, and the form of the curve 
depends on the ratio between them. Then, the third case is possible that B is less than A. If B is less than A, we still can find values for the curve. We can always solve the equation and obtain values for the curve, ordinates and abscissa, even when B is smaller than A. Only the curve then continues its peculiar behavior. For when B is less than A, we find two branches of the curve which look something like this, see figure 7. We have a discontinuous curve. Readers aside, in other words, more or less three, more or less two circles in the readers aside. And here we come to the point where the mathematics itself confronts us with what I call the, quote, comprehensibly incomprehensible something that is difficult to grasp spatially. For in the sense of the mathematical equation, this is not two curves, but one. It's a single curve in exactly the same way that all of these are single curves. In this one, see figure 6, there's already a transition. The point where, which describes the curve takes this path, goes round underneath, intersects its previous path here, and returns to itself here, in the Lemnus gate. Here, figure 7, we have to imagine the following. If we let the point M move along this line, it doesn't simply cross over from one side to the other. It doesn't do that. It runs along the path just as it does here, in figure 6, describes a curve here, but then manages to turn up again here. You see, that which carries the point along the lines disappears in the middle. If you want to understand the curve, you can only imagine that it disappears in the middle. If you try to form an idea that remains purely continuous within the process of representation, what must you do? It's quite easy, isn't it, to imagine such curves? I say this in parenthesis, only for the ordinary Philistines. You can go on imagining points along the curve, and you don't find that your process of mental representation is cut short. Here, admittedly, you have to modify the comfortable way of simply going round and round, but still it goes on continuously. You can maintain your hold upon the process of mental representation. But now, when you come to this curve, figure 7, which is not one of your Philistine curves, and you want to form a mental picture of it, then in order to maintain the continuity of mental representation, you will have to say, space no longer gives me a point of reference. In crossing over to the other branch in my process of mental representation, unless I break the continuity of representation and regard the one branch as isolated on its own, I have to take my process of mental representation outside of space. I can't remain within space. So you see, mathematics itself provides us with facts that oblige us to leave space if we want to preserve the continuity of mental representation. Reality itself demands of us that in our process of mental representation we move outside of space. Hence, even in mathematics, we're confronted with something that shows us we must somehow leave space behind if we want to orient ourselves properly within ideation. When we begin to think, we call forth within a process that we ourselves have undertaken, something that requires us to go on thinking in such a way that space is no longer of any help to us.
Otherwise, we wouldn't be accounting for all the possible solutions to the equation. In pursuing a similar line of thought, we meet with other instances of this kind, many of them. I will draw your attention only to the very next step, which realizes itself for you if you now pose the following question. The ellipse is the geometric locus of the constant sum. It's characterized by the fact that it's the curve of constant sum. The hyperbola is the curve of constant difference. The curve of Cassini in its various forms is the curve of constant product. So there also has to be a curve of constant quotient. If we have here A, here B, here a point M, and then a constant quotient to be formed through the division of BM by AM. And there's an equation, BM sub 1 over AM sub 1 equals BM sub 2 over AM sub 1, etc. We must be able to find different points, M1, M2, etc., which are always equal to one another and always equal to a constant number. This curve is, in fact, the circle. If we look for the points M1, M2, etc., we find a circle that has this particular relationship to the points A and B, see figure 8. So we can say, besides the usual trivial definition of a circle, namely that it's the locus of a point whose distance from a fixed point remains constant, there's another definition. The circle is that curve, every point of which fulfills the condition that its distances from two fixed points maintain a constant quotient. Now, in considering the circle in this way, we have the possibility to observe something else. Where you see, if we express BM is to AM in terms of M is to N, hence BM over AM equals M over N, we always obtain corresponding values in the equation and we can find the circle in one place or another. In doing this, we find different forms of the circle according to the proportion of M to N. These different forms of the circle behave in such a way that their curvature becomes less and less. When N is much greater than M, we find a circle with a very strong curvature. As N decreases, the curvature of the circle decreases along with it. The circle becomes larger and larger the smaller the difference between N and M. And if we follow this proportion of M to N still further, the circle gradually passes over into a straight line. You can follow this in the equation. It passes over into the ordinate axis itself. The circle becomes the ordinate axis when M equals N, that is, when the quotient M over N equals 1. In this way, the circle gradually changes into the ordinate axis, into a straight line. You needn't be particularly astonished that this happens. That's still something you can imagine. But something very different happens if we wish to follow the process still further. You can say to yourself that the circle has flattened more and more, and through becoming flatter from within, as it were, it changes into a straight line. 
It does this because the constant ratio in the equation undergoes a change. But, of course, this constant ratio can exceed 1. So that the arcs of the circles appear here. What must we do, however, if we want to follow it in our process of mental representation? We have to do something quite peculiar. We have, in fact, to think of a circle which is not curved toward the inside, but rather curved toward the outside. I can't draw this circle for you, of course, but it's possible to think of a circle that's curved toward the outside. In an ordinary circle, the curvature is toward the inside, isn't it? If we follow the line around, the circle closes. But defining the circle in this other way, if we use the necessary constant, we obtain a straight line. The curvature is still on this side, but now the curvature makes us less comfortable than we were before. Previously, the curvature always turned toward the center of the circle, while now what's indicated is that the center is at infinity, as one says. But now we see arising here the idea of a circle that's curved toward the outside. Its curvature is then no longer as it is here. That would just be the Philistine circle, of course, but rather as it is here. Readers aside, there's a number of footnotes here and not possible to read them, and they wouldn't necessarily make sense because you don't have a visual. So again, I'm afraid to say I would buy the book. (laughs) End of readers aside. Therefore, the inside of this circle is not here. This is the outside. The inside of this circle is this here. Now compare that with the things I described earlier today, with the curve of Cassini and its various subsets, the lemnus gate, and the form in which there are two branches. And now we have formed an image of the circle in such a way that at one point it's curved like this, with the inside here and the outside here, while in a second form of the circle, in drawing it we are only indicating what is meant, we find that the curvature is this way round, with an inside here and an outside here. Comparing it with the Cassini curve, the first form of the circle would correspond to the closed forms, as far as the lemnus gate. After this, we have another kind of circle, which has to be conceived in this direction, being curved this way, with the inside here and the outside here. You see, when we are concerned with the constant product, we find forms of the curve of Cassini, in which, even though we are thrown out of space, Nevertheless, we still can draw the other branch on the other side. The other branch lies within space again, although in order to pass from the one to the other, we are thrown out of space. Here, in the case of the circle, however, the matter becomes even more difficult. In the transition from circle to straight line, we are indeed thrown out of space, and moreover, we no longer can draw any kind of closed figure. We can't manage it. In passing over from the curve of constant product to the curve of constant quotient, we're barely able to indicate the thought spatially. It's extraordinarily important for us to concern ourselves with the creating of ideas which still sneak into such curve forms, as it were. I'm convinced that most people who concern themselves with mathematics take note of such discontinuities, but then make the thought process more comfortable by simply holding to the formula, 
and not passing on to what would accompany the mathematical formula in a real continuity of mental representation. Also, I've never seen that in the treatment of mathematics as subject matter for education, any great value is placed upon the forming of such mental representations. I don't know, I ask the mathematicians present, Herr Blümel, Herr Baraval, whether this is so, whether in modern university education any importance is attached to this. Uh, Dr. Carl Unger here mentions the use of the cinema. Yes, but that's a pseudo-process. It's possible to represent such things within empirical space only by means of the cinema or in similar ways if some sort of deception is introduced. It can't be depicted fully in real space without the effect being achieved through some form of deception. The issue is whether there exists anywhere in the sphere of reality something which obliges us to think real objects in terms of such curves. That's the question I want to pose now. Before passing on, however, to describe what might perhaps correspond to these things in the real world, I'd like to add something that might perhaps make it easier for you to transition from these abstract ideas to reality. It's the following. You can set another problem in the sphere of theoretical astronomy, theoretical physics. You can say, let's suppose there's a source of light here at A, and this source of light at A illumines a point M, see figure 10. The intensity of the illumination shining from M is observed from B. That is, with the necessary optical instruments, observation is made from B of the intensity of the illumination shining from the point M which is illumined from A. And, of course, the intensity of the illumination would vary with the distance between B and M. But there is a path which could be described by the point M such that being illumined from A, it always shines back to B with the same intensity. There is such a path. And we can therefore ask, what must be the path of a point illumined from a fixed point A such that seen from another fixed point B, its light is always of the same intensity? This curve, the curve in which such a point would have to move, is the curve of Cassini. What this reveals is that here something that's already tipping over into manifesting qualities, entering into a spatial relationship, fitting into a complicated curve. The quality that we see within illumination, for we must view intensity of illumination as a quality, depends in this case on the element of form in the spatial relationships. So my only point in bringing up this example is to show you that there is indeed a methodical way of getting from what can be grasped in geometrical figures to what's qualitative. And yet in a certain sense, this way is a very, very long one. And now I'd like to turn to something else. It would take months to present it in detail, but I want to draw your attention to it nevertheless. At every point, you should keep in mind that I only intend to give you guidelines. It's up to you to develop them further and to go into all the details. In those details, you'll always find verifications. 
where you see the connection that we have to establish between spiritual science and the empirical sciences of today requires intensely interdisciplinary work, tremendously wide-ranging research. But once guidelines have been indicated, this work can be undertaken to some extent. It's possible. You only need to find your entry into the empirical phenomena in a very specific way. Now, let's try to tackle the problem from a completely different angle. We've made some attempts to come at it from the angle of mathematics already. Anyone who is studying the human organism can't fail to notice something. It's something that we've often emphasized within our circles, especially in the discussions that accompanied the course of lectures on medicine in Dornach in the spring of 1920. It's inescapable that certain relationships exist between the systems of the head and those of the rest of the human organism, for example, the metabolic system. There is indeed a connection, indefinable to begin with, between what takes place in the third system within our human constitution, in all the organs of metabolic system, and what takes place in the head. The relationship is there, but it's hard to grasp. Even though it emerges clearly in various phenomena, for example, it's obvious that certain illnesses are connected with skull or head deformities and the like, and these things can be traced clearly by researchers who try to explain them using biological reasoning. Nevertheless, it's difficult to grasp this relationship conceptually. People usually don't get beyond the point of saying that there has to be some sort of connection between what unfolds in the head, for instance, and in the rest of the human organism. It's an idea that's difficult to form, just because it's so very hard for people to make the transition from the quantitative aspect to the qualitative. If you haven't been taught how to find this transition by employing a spiritual scientific methodology, quite independently of what outer experience offers, if you haven't been taught how to extend the same mode of thinking we use for what is quantitative to the domain of qualities, if we don't methodically train ourselves to do this, then there will always be an apparent limit to our understanding of external phenomena. Let me indicate just one way in which you can train yourselves methodologically to think about qualities in a way similar to our thinking about quantities. You are all acquainted with the phenomenon of the solar spectrum, the usual continuous spectrum. You know that we have there the transition of color from red to violet. You know, too, that Goethe wrestled with the problem of how this spectrum is, in a sense, the reverse of what must arise if darkness is allowed to pass through the prism in the same way as is usually done with light. The result is a kind of inverted spectrum. And as you know, Goethe performed this experiment also. In the ordinary spectrum, the green passes over on the one side toward violet and on the other toward the red, see figure 11. Whereas in the spectrum obtained by Goethe in applying a strip of darkness to the prism, there's peach blossom in the middle and then again red on the one side and violet on the other, see figure 12. The two color bands are obtained, the centers of which are opposite to each other, qualitatively opposite. 
and both bands seem to stretch away, as it were, into infinity. But now, one can imagine that this axis, the longitudinal axis of the ordinary spectrum, isn't simply a straight line, but a circle, as indeed every straight line is a circle. If this straight line is a circle, it returns into itself. And we can consider the point where the peach blossom appears to be the same point as the one in which the violet, stretching to the right, meets the red, which stretches to the left. They meet in the infinite distance to the right and left. If we were to succeed, maybe you know that one of the first experiments to be made in our newly established physics laboratory is to be in this direction. If we were to succeed, maybe you know that one of the first experiments to be made in our newly established physics laboratory is to be in this direction. If we were to succeed in bending the spectrum in a certain way into itself, then even those who are not willing to grasp the matter to begin with in pure thought will be able to see that we really are dealing with something of a qualitative nature. We come to certain limiting ideas in mathematics, whereas in projective geometry we're obliged to regard the straight line also as a circle in an inner yet thoroughly real sense, where we're obliged to admit of the infinitely distant point of a straight line as being only one point, or to understand as bounding a plane, not some line above and then again below, but a single straight line, or to think of the boundary of infinite space, not in the nature of something spherical, but as a plane. Such ideas, however, also become, in a way, limiting ideas for sense-perceptible empirical reality. And we are made to realize it if we insist on restricting ourselves to sense-perceptible reality. This brings us to something which would otherwise remain perpetually in the dark. I have already mentioned it. It leads us to start thinking rigorously about the kind of mental representations we can attain when we allow the lemniscate form of the Cassini curve to pass over into the double-branched form, the form with two branches that require us to step outside of space, and then compare this with what confronts us in the empirical reality. You are indeed already doing this when you apply mathematics in one way or another to the empirical reality. You call a given triangle a triangle because you first have constructed it mathematically. You apply to the outer form what has been evolved in an inner constructive way within you. The process I have just described is only more complicated, but it's the same process as when you think of the two branches of that particular form of the Cassini curve as one. Apply this thought to the correspondence between the human head and the rest of the human organism, and you'll have to realize that in the head there is a connection with the remaining organism of precisely such a character as is expressed by the equation which requires not a continuous curve, but a discontinuous one. This can't be pursued using the methods of conventional anatomy. You have to go out beyond what the body comprises physically if you want to trace the connection between what comes to expression in the head and what comes to expression in the metabolic system.
It's essential to approach the human organism with the kind of ideas that remain unattainable if you insist that every element of this idea has to have an adequate sense-perceptible component. We have to reach out towards something else, beyond the sense-perceptible realm, if we want to find out what kind of thing this relationship really is within our human nature. If you really enter into it and carry it out methodically, this mode of contemplation is extraordinarily rich in its results. The underlying structure of the human organism is of such a nature that it cannot be comprehended solely in anatomical terms. Just as we are driven out of space by the Cassini curve, in contemplating human nature we are likewise driven out of the body by the mode of contemplation itself. Our first task is to grasp conceptually that in a study of human nature as a whole we are driven out of the realm that can be grasped empirically by the physical senses. To advocate such things is no sin against scientific rigor. Such ideas are far removed from the purely hypothetical fantasies that are often entertained in connection with natural phenomena, for they refer to the whole way in which we are connected organically with the universe as human beings. And you are not looking for something that is otherwise non-existent, but rather for something that is exactly the same as what is expressed in the relationship between someone thinking mathematically and the empirical reality. It is not at all a question of looking for unjustifiable hypotheses of one kind or another. It is a question, since reality is obviously complicated, of looking for other cognitive relations to the inner reality, in addition to the simple relation of someone who is thinking mathematically to empirical reality. Once you have accepted such thoughts, you'll also be led to ask whether what takes place outside the human constitution in other domains besides the astronomical, for example, in those phenomena which we call chemical and physical, whether those same phenomena which we regard as chemical phenomena outside of the body take the same course within the human body when we are alive as they do outside us, or whether here too a transition is necessary which leads in some way out of space. Now consider the important question that arises from this. Suppose we have here some kind of chemical phenomenon and here the boundary leading over to the inside of the human organism. See figure 13. Supposing that this chemical phenomenon were able to call forth another so that the human organism reacted here then if we remain within the field of the empirical, space would of course be the mediator. If, however, the continuance of this phenomenon within the human organism comes about by virtue of the fact, say, that we as human beings are nourished by food and the processes already taking place outside us continue inside us, then the question arises, does the force that is at work in the chemical process remain in the same space when it's taking place within the human organism as when it is taking its course outside it? Or must we perhaps go out of space? 
And there you have the analog of the circle that changes over into a straight line. If you look for its other form, where what's usually turned outward is now turned inward, you're entirely outside of space. The question is whether we don't need ideas such as these, which, while remaining continuous, go right out of space, when we follow the course of what happens outwardly, outside the human organism, into our own inner nature. The only objection that can be raised against such things is that they certainly impose greater demands on our human capacities than the ideas with which the phenomena are approached today. They might make some people within higher education uncomfortable. They do indeed make us uncomfortable, for they imply that before approaching the phenomena, we have to awaken within ourselves what will enable us to understand them. Nothing like this exists in our educational system today, but it must come, it absolutely has to come. Otherwise, simply in speaking of a phenomenon, we get into the greatest disparities, without in any way seeing the reality. Just think what happens when someone observes the circle as it curves to this side, figure 9a, and then sees how it curves to this side figure 9b, but then remains a Philistine and simply fails to grasp that the circle now curves toward the other side. The Philistine says, this is impossible. The circle can't curve that way. I have to put the curvature this way round, and I simply have to place myself on the other side. He seems to be speaking about one and the same thing, but actually he has changed his point of view. That's how we simplify things today. That's how we depict human inwardness in relation to our depiction of outer nature. We say, what's within the human constitution doesn't exist at all. I must simply place myself within that constitution and say that the curvature is facing this way. See figure 9c. What I'm doing then is contemplating what's inside without taking into account that I have reversed the curvature. I make our human inwardness into an outer nature. I simply imagine outer natures continuing through the skin into the interior. They turn themselves round because they're not willing to go along with the other form of curvature, and then they theorize. That's the trick people perform today for the sole reason that they can adhere to more comfortable notions. There's no desire to follow reality so that they don't have to follow reality, they simply turn ourselves around. And this is now a figure of speech. Instead of looking at the human from in front, they look at nature from behind. And that's how they arrive at all their various theories concerning human nature. That's the point at which we'll want to take up again tomorrow. The end of Lecture 9